very good morning to all of you once again. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. What a great song to begin, really, uh, this time of, of um, fellowship around the Word. And if you, if you have uh, received uh, Chad's email from yesterday, um, you'd, you'd know that uh, you would have received a, a sermon outline, and you'd know that our text for this morning is from Romans 5, and we're looking from verse 8 to 19. Thank you, Benji, for, um, for bringing up all these wonderful songs that help to focus our attention uh, on this passage of Scripture, and, and part of it was read even uh, a bit earlier, as you would have noticed. Um, and uh, so if you, if you have your Bibles, please turn, with, uh, turn to Romans 5, verse 8 to 19, and we'll read it in just a moment. But uh, the sermon outline that you received uh, should also tell you that the, the, the title for the sermon is The Justifying Obedience of Christ. And as we, as we um, remember and commemorate Good Friday, I want us to really appreciate what the cross means to us, what it has done for us, what Christ has done for us. And all that, I think, is wrapped up in His justifying obedience on our behalf. And I get that from verses 18 and 19. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification to all men. And what was that one act of righteousness in verse 19? For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, but even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And so we understand that um, uh, the cross is an indication of Christ's justifying obedience on our behalf. We already know that justification is a, is a biblical term that talks about being made right in God's eyes. You understand that it refers to the idea of God looking at you as though you were completely righteous. And so there's, there's legal connotations to this term uh, that, that speak of being seen as faultless in the eyes of a judge who is presiding over a legal matter. So, so the justifying obedience of Christ is about his, his obedience on our behalf so that we are seen as righteous in the eyes of God. We are declared righteous because Christ has kept the law for us. His entire life was sinless and pure as a lamb without spot and blemish. However, this verse in verse 18, I don't think is talking about his life because it's talking about the one act, the one act of righteousness, the one act of obedience, and that act was his death on the cross, which we are remembering and commemorating today. I do believe that this entire section from verse 18 to 19, and even on the previous chapter, this entire section is a culmination of the justifying obedience of Christ. Because, you know, in the previous chapter, Paul is talking about justification by faith, as, as seen in the example of Abraham in, in chapter 4. But then as we come to chapter 5, having established the principle of justification by faith, Paul turns to the matter of hope. Which is why I think this is a really uh, the, the message to be preached, especially in our day and time, because the world is full of hopelessness. There is no hope to be found in light of the present sickness that has invaded our planet. Everyone is gripped by fear and uncertainty because there is no hope. No hope to be found. 
And on this Good Friday, the cross is a message of hope. Good Friday is a message of hope. Why? If you read in chapter 5, verse 3, we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And what's more, hope does not disappoint. This is not wishful thinking. This is not crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And why is that such a big deal to have the love of God poured out into our hearts? Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so the love of God was poured out on us and into us at a time when we least deserved it. And that is the reason we have hope. Because Christ has reached down to us when we in the, were in the gutter of sin and is lifted up to heights where he is at. And we know that he did this on the cross. We live through some very hopeless times at the moment, but we can exult, as the passage says, and we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That has terms of with your head lifted high. We can exult in these tough times with heads lifted high, with godly confidence because of the hope that we have. Hope not in what we have done, Hope not in our own lives, in our own goodness, in our own perfection, in our own works of righteousness, but hope in what Christ has done for us. And so we're going to look at this chapter, at, at, at this text, uh, which, which talks about the justifying obedience of Christ in three parts, as perhaps you would see in your outline. And the first part is, is from verse 8 to verse 11, which is all about the hope that we have because of what God has done for us. What has God done for us? Why is this such a big deal? And so we're going to call this section the reward of the cross. The cross brings a message of hope because it brings a message of reward. And I want to stress and I will keep stressing through this time that it is a reward for those who are unworthy. In the second section from verse 12 to 17, we ask the question, why did God need to do this? Why did God need to reward us? What is the reason for all that he has done? Why was it so necessary for him to do what he did? And so we will talk about the reason of the cross. And once we understand the reason, we will see why we have hope. In the third section, the summary section in verse 18 to 19, we will see the result of the cross and we will see the outcome that the cross brings us and the outcome is great hope great hope and so the cross carries a message of hope because of this result and so we want to see the reward the reason and the result of the cross through the lens of the justifying obedience of Christ and we will see why we have hope and we want to see this through three underlying realities and and this these realities come across in every part of this text the reality of sin, the reality of punishment, the reality of atonement, and the reality of reconciliation. We will see this time and time and time again being spoken of in the text. And these are, these are three realities that, that Paul presumes as he is writing to the church in Rome. And so hope shines through because despite the reality of sin, despite the punishment that it brings, 
there is full atonement and there is full reconciliation that we can have in Christ. And so with that introduction, let's move to our first part of the text, verse 8 to 11, where we'll, we will see the reward of the cross. This is what God's word says. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, while, were we, while we were in the process of being sinners, while we were ongoing sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, now that we have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the reward that we see? I can see at least three rewards. Justification, salvation, reconciliation. The reward is that we are declared righteous in God's eyes. We are saved from his wrath. And we are reconciled to the God against whom we were hostile and against whom we were estranged. So the question then comes, why is this such a big deal? Why, is it, why does it merit speaking? Why does it merit singing about? Why does it mer merit gathering around a live stream to hear this message? Well, because God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that word demonstrate has the idea of lining up individual facts to, to validate a point. But God demonstrates his own love. He, he steps out and lines up fact after fact after fact for his love for us. And he does that while we were yet sinners in the death of Christ for us. Now, just so we understand, what is the word sinner over here? And we find three synonyms. So one is in verse 6, one is with the word sinners, and then we see the word enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And in verse 6, we have another synonym which says, Christ died for the ungodly. So what is our state? What is our state of affairs when, when Christ dies for us? We are ungodly, we are sinners, we are enemies. And I just want us to understand and appreciate this state so that we can understand the depth of sin that we are in when Christ dies for us. That word ungodly has the idea of someone who is lacking in reverence and respect. Someone who doesn't care for what is sacred. Someone who is disrespectful, someone who fails to honor and give respect where it is due. Sinners, as we know, is, is, is the word for something that falls short, someone who falls short of a particular standard, who, who fails to hit the mark. And enemies is a word for someone who is openly hostile, someone who has a deep-seated sense of animosity that is irreconcilable, deep-seated hatred, is their motivation. And so that is the state in which Christ dies for us. He dies for those who are impious, irreverent, for those who have failed to hit, failed to hit the mark, and for those who are hostile and motivated by a deep sense of hatred for him. This is what makes God, God's love, such a big deal. While we were yet sinners, Christ died 
for us. I, I want to uh, just maybe unpack this idea a bit further. Sometimes we have this idea of being a sinner is, uh, for example, someone's trying to scale a wall, and they're trying to scale it, but they just can't jump high enough, and they can't get over. Or someone is maybe trying to hit a target, they're desperately trying to aim for it, and they're trying to line up the sights, but for some reason the, the sight is off, or they're not able to hit it. And so therefore the intention is right, they have the right heart, but for some reason they're not able to achieve the end. But what does, the, what does Scripture tell us? Is Scripture telling us that our hearts are correct, it's just that we, we can't make it? Is Scripture telling us that we have the right attitude, we just don't have the right perfection? No. It's not as if Jesus is completing what we have left half done. Jesus is doing what we are not inclined to do. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not as if we're trying very hard and Jesus is coming behind us and lifting up our hand and so we can aim and hit it. No, no, no. We're not interested in hitting that target. We want our own target. We want our own standards. We want our own set of rules. We want to do things our way. And so we're not interested in hitting God's target. We're just interested in hitting our target. And so the love of God is demonstrated by Him sacrificing His Son for those who are not the least bit interested in Him. And then the big deal, what, what, what Paul is talking about here, much more then. If God loved us so much that while we were in this state of hostility and enmity, that in that state he sent his son to die for us, to justify us, now that we have become justified and now that Christ has risen, how much more will the love of God be demonstrated to us? Think about, I mean, when, when, when Christ is dying for those he, who hate him, how much more will he love them now that they love him? We see that, that, that so much more, having now been justified, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled through his death, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I believe that life is the life he now lives. His resurrected life. As Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save those who come to God because he ever lives to make intercession for them. So if the death of Christ on behalf of his enemies demonstrates God's love, how much more will his love be demonstrated now that those enemies have been brought near and reconciled? If God's love for us was so incredible when we were hostile towards Him, how much more will that love be for us now that He has adopted us as His children and made us co-inheritors with His Son? So the reward of the cross is justification. We are declared righteous while still being enemies. I mean, think about that. We are reckoned as righteous in God's eyes while we are in that state of hostility. Why? Not because of what we've done. Not because of any decision we made. 
But because of the, sh the shed blood of Christ on the cross, the reward of the cross is salvation because now Christ has paid for our sin in full with his blood. That blood should have been ours, but now he sheds his own blood on our behalf. We are saved by the wrath of God through him. And then we are reconciled. And that word for reconciled is, is really interesting. It's not, it's not some sentimental word with two people just giving each other a hug or, or coming and embracing, and I'm sure it would, it would, would uh, involve that. But the, the word reconciliation has the idea of a decisive change that brings two people on the same page. They start thinking the same. So the, the, the justification of sinners and enemies results in reconciliation so that enemies now start thinking the same. And here we see the, the four great realities that I was talking about of sin. Sin, that's why we're enemies. There's punishment because there's wrath of God against his enemies. God doesn't hate us. We hate him. We need to understand that. He hates sin, and therefore he has to punish it. But then comes the, the glorious reality of the atonement. Christ, our high priest, doesn't just take a lamb or a bull or a goat and sacrifice. He sacrifices himself on our behalf to make atonement for our sins, which then brings us reconciliation with Christ, with God. So I want us to understand the magnitude of God's love. How much does God love you and how much does he love me? He loves us enough to send his son to die for us when we wanted nothing to do with him. That's the depth of his love. When we were enemies, when we were hostile, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. What is the breadth of his love? He just covers all our sin. He, he makes atonement for every single sin of every single person. And so the breadth of that love is just so wide. Deep and wide. And, and, what does the enemy do to be saved? Nothing. What does the enemy contribute towards this salvation in terms of their own righteousness? Nothing. Salvation of man is a divine initiative, completely from start to finish. It is not conditional upon the response of the enemy. Because while we were yet sinners... It's not, it's not saying, while we were yet sinners, we made a decision to follow Christ. No, no. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not, it's not my cooperation that earns my salvation because I'm not cooperating. I'm an enemy. I'm hostile. I'm ungodly. The question of my cooperation does not arise. And I want us to see Christ on that cross, not because he's trying to, to go the extra mile that we couldn't go. Christ is not on the cross because he's lifting us up and giving us a leg up to cross that wall of God's perfection. 
No, he's dying for those who are kicking him and spitting him and smiting him. He's dying for his enemies. The reward of the cross is for the undeserving. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. I mean, we sing the song, but do we truly understand what wretchedness is? I believe this text gives us to understand. All we like sheep have gone astray. How have we gone astray? Each of us has gone his own way. We're just doing our own thing. And the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. That's the reward. Amazing grace for the undeserving. But why, why was all this necessary? Why, why, why did the love of God have to be shown in this way? Yes, we understand the wretchedness of sin. And now we see the reason for the cross in verse 12 to 17. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. So Paul's established the reality of sin. He's established the reality of punishment. He's established the reality of justification. He's established the reality of, of, uh, of reconciliation. But now he's unpacking it. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. But the free gift is not like the transgression. So, so Adam, Adam's done a lot of stuff. And Adam's driven us and plunged us into sin. Adam has plunged entire humanity into sin. Adam has plunged entire um, humanity into hopelessness and despair. And so he is the type of him who comes, not that he is as righteous as Christ, but his actions have consequences that go everywhere. But the free gift of Christ is not like the transgression of Adam, because if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. I just want to point out one little contrast. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned. And verse 17, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. And so in this passage, in the sec second uh, section of our, of our text, we see contrast. We see sin introduced and death introduced and sin and death spread. And so we understand that sin is a virus. And so we have a correct perspective on COVID-19 because we understand that this virus does not have eternal implications, but sin does. And therefore we have hope because our sin has not been reckoned to us. And so we do not care if we live or die because we are going to live with Christ and reign with Him. And so we are not gripped by fear because of uncertainty and panic, but we rest in the calm assurance that Christ has died for us. 
He has died to save us from this virus that one man, the first man, plunged us into. And so in, 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 verse, in verses 12 to 13, we just see an introduction into sin and death. And the reality now that sin is, is an infection, it, it is passed on. And so the, the problem that Adam has introduced into the planet is the problem of sin. We, he, Adam has infected us with a sin nature. And our connection to Adam means that we are natural born sinners, we are natural born enemies, we are naturally born hostile to the God who created us. Thank you, Adam. But we have the contrast. The first man transgressed, the second man brings a free gift. The first man causes many to die. The second man causes many to live. The first man causes judgment. The second man causes justification. The first man brings condemnation about, uh, upon us and the second man brings abundant life upon us. The first man plunges us into the depths of despair and the second man raises, up, raises us up to the heights of glory. Is this not reason for hope? And here's the thing. We did nothing to make this happen. And so what's, what's the reason for the contrast? It just shows us what our natural state is and what our spiritual state is. It shows us what, what is due to us when we are connected to Adam and what is due to us when we are connected to Christ. And so we are able to make a very clear distinction about where our future is because we see two clear pathways of our eternal destiny based on our history. If I'm connected to Adam in the past, I am doomed. And I am connected to Adam in the past and I am doomed. But now... After the cross, I am connected to Christ. And so I will live. And therefore I have hope. The hopelessness is because I am born with a virus that will kill me. And the hope is that Christ has the antidote that will save me. I am hopeless because this virus programs me to be hostile to my God. But the hope is that the blood of Christ which is shed for me makes my God look favorably upon me. Wow! I want us to understand over here that the imputation of sin, the, 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 the reckoning of sin is a reality both from Adam to us and from us to Christ. Now someone would object, hey, you know, this is not my fault. Why am I being blamed for what Adam did? And you know what? That's what Adam said. This woman that you gave me, it's her fault. And so I want us to understand that, that when we question and we say it's not my fault, it's not fair, we are questioning the justice of God. 
We, the creatures, are questioning the justice of and fairness and equity of our Creator. And the simple question is, do you agree that you have sinned? Do you agree that you have a sin nature? Do you agree that you are the enemy of God? Because if you do, then how are you going to pay for that? Yourself? No, you can't. There's nothing you can do. There's not enough that you can do. The only thing that will make atonement for your sin is your death. And the only thing that you can escape that death is if someone dies for you. And who died for you? Christ. No one else. Christ is our substitute. He bears the sin and the punishment that was due to us. For until the law was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And so, again, just, just you know, everyone, even though everyone did not sin in the same way that Adam sinned, everyone died just as Adam died. And so Paul is making the point that, you know, if anyone was there to say, hey, you know, if, if there's no law, how can you say I did anything wrong? And Paul is saying, hey, did you die? Did people die from Adam to Moses? Yes, then, hey. There is the presence of sin. Sin kills. Sin kills. This is what we need to understand. Sin is not just a, a temporary affliction. Sin is not just a mistake. Sin is not just an accident. Sin is an offense. And we, we understand that offenses have to be paid for. So how do I get out of this mess? Christ. Christ. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. So we come to our last section, the result of the cross. So then, and so, so Paul seems to be, to, be, to be wrapping it all up now. He's, he's made the case for sin and the reality of sin and the reality of punishment and, and atonement and justification. And he's talked about how it came in and how it came about and how we all got infected and how the, there's a difference between the first Adam and the second Adam and the first man and the second man. And now he just wraps it all up. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man disobedience, through, uh, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And so the contrast continues: one transgression brings condemnation to all, versus one act of righteousness brings justification of life to all. One man's disobedience makes many sinners. One man's obedience makes many righteous. And so again. The reality of sin and punishment and, and justification and atonement and reconciliation. We, again, that underpins Paul's writing over here. And what I want us to notice over here, what I want us to notice is the certainty. 
So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. It's not, this may have happened, I'm not really sure if this happened, but I think this happened. No, no. This is the fact. And then, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life. So in the same way that sin is a reality, atonement and justification is a reality. A certainty. Even as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so the obedience of the one will many be made righteous. And so that, that will be made is not a sense that this is going to happen in the future. That will be made is this is going to happen. It will be done. There's a guarantee, there's a certainty, there's an assurance. The place of death for Christ becomes the place of life for us. That's the result of the cross. We sing that song, This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. And what's the result? We stand forgiven at the cross. Christ's death will result in justification because it has. His justifying obedience is finished. And that's what, that's what I want us to understand. When he is on the cross and saying it is finished, what is finished? What is finished? Our justification is finished. Nothing more needs to be done in order for us to stand righteous in God's eyes. Doesn't mean we become righteous. It suddenly doesn't mean that we become perfect. It just means God looks at us as having the same perfection that His Son has. His death didn't just pay for my sin. His death made me righteous in His Father's eyes. And so redemption is finished. The price is fully paid. Atonement is finished because sin is fully absolved. Propitiation is finished because the Father has no more wrath towards me. Because Christ's death is the sponge, Calvary and the cross is the sponge which soaks up the wrath of God fully and finally. By His wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid upon us, laid upon Him, the iniquity of us all. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. And so like I said before, my justification is not conditional on my response to Christ. My justification is conditional on Christ's response to me. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And so someone might say, but you know, Paul was talking about justification by faith. And Abraham was justified by faith. But no, while Abraham was still a sinner, Christ died for him. And justification comes first. And then by faith, we trust in that justification. 
and we have life. We love Him because He first loved us. He didn't love us because we were lovable. He didn't love us because we were kind of okay. He loved us while we were still sinners. And the love of God is demonstrated in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet ungodly, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And so I want to, I want to conclude with, with hope again by saying that I believe that this verse tells us that our salvation cannot be lost. Why? Because our justification cannot be lost. Why? Because we didn't do anything to justify ourselves to begin with. Justification is not a roller coaster ride that goes up and down and up and down depending upon my actions toward God. Justification is the full and final sealed act based on what Christ has done on the cross. Done. Justification. He has made us right. It's not His cooperation with us has made us right. No, no, no. He has made us right alone. It is the justifying obedience of Christ that secures our salvation and that reckons us righteous in the Father's eyes. And Paul will go on to say this in Romans 8, those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, what did He do? He justified. And those whom He justified, what did He do? He also glorified. Brothers and sisters, I mean, here is the result of the cross. If Jesus died for you to justify you, He will glorify you. I do not know of any greater hope than this. That is why this, the cross has great hope for us. Our sin is fully paid for. Our debt is fully cancelled. The wrath of God is fully removed and, and we are adopted and, and made co-heirs. We who were once enemies now have the same rights of inheritance as Christ. I mean, this is, this is crazy. This does not make sense. This is the scandal of the cross. That those who were reckoned as enemies and who were in fact enemies and hostile have now become co-inheritors with the one who died for them. Tell me if there is any greater hope. Hope beyond this life. Hope beyond sin. Hope beyond all the sickness, hope beyond all the trouble and turmoil and grief and fear and uncertainty of this life. Where is hope to be found? At the cross. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, where the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Where is your hope? That's, 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 that's the only question to be asked now. Where is your hope? 
my hope is built. I'm singing a lot of hymns, but you know that that's the only way I can say it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I cannot trust any other but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Where is our hope? Have we confessed us? And have we have we realized? Have we realized the, the, the depth of our hopelessness? And the depth of our hopelessness is not because we are in financial instability. The depth of our hopelessness is not because we are sick and have a terminal disease. Uh, the depth of our hopelessness is not because we've lost our job. The depth of our hopelessness is because we are connected to Adam. And because we are connected to Adam, we are incurring the wrath of God and will continue to incur the wrath of God until we believe in the way that God has made to reconcile us to himself. Confess your sin, repent, turn from your sin, trust in the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, and you will be free. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and loving Father, this, this, this message is truly, truly, truly more than words can appreciate. Father, it is so rich in love, it is so rich in grace. It is so rich in reward and hope. Father, truly that we, we have just only been able to t scratch the surface of this. And we just pray, Lord, that as we, as we just go into the rest of this day, in this long weekend, we just pray that the truth and reality of the cross would be with us. Yes, it would remind us of our sin, it would remind us of the penalty that we have to pay. But the joy of it all is that Christ has paid it for us. Lord, let this be a message of great hope for us. Let this be a message that really, really gives us joy in the midst of this world that is gripped in fear and panic. Not so that we could just be confident and look smug, but Lord, so that we would be the aroma of the gospel to those around us who are gripped by fear, and we can tell them the reason for our hope is because of Good Friday, because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And we pray, Lord, that we would share this message to as many people as you bring in our path. We pray that you would help us to share it with, with humility, with love, with sensitivity, with boldness and courage. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring a great harvest of souls into your kingdom through this. Because Christ's obedience and his justifying obedience has secured our justification. We do not fear anymore. And we give you praise and thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen.